Hi, welcome to Talking Academia. Today I'm talking to Emily. Emily is my course mate from linguistics at Cambridge, but she didn't do linguistics in her undergrad. We're gonna find out what she did in her undergrad. Hi, Emily. Hello, yeah. <laughs> so, um, how did you end up here? What did you do before? Mm, guess. <laughs> I think maybe you did psychology. Oh, yes, that is exactly what I did. You read my mind. <laughs> Was that some sort of psychological, like, psychologist's uh, trick or something? Well, first rule of speaking to a psychologist, don't ask them if they can read your mind. <laughs> I mean, you can, and then they would just say, okay, I think you're thinking, does she know what I'm thinking right now. <laughs> That's it's a very creepy start yes. to interview. <laughs> well, actually, uh, the psychology I learned is more uh, sciencey than most. So um, I studied psychology in Peking University. Peking University, um, their psychology is more uh, leaning towards cognitive science, like neuron kind of that sort of stuff, uh, brain science. So they recently renamed the faculty uh, from Department of, of Psychology to uh, School of Cognitive uh, and Psychological Sciences, something like that. So uh, how is it different from like other psychologists, or, or what do others? Well, because I don't know what. what yeah, for example, <laughs> Beijing Normal University. They are um, well education um, majors and stuff. They have psychology and. Allegedly, they are the best one in the country in China, but um, their style of psychology is more like ours, humanity like. Mm -hmm. So, less um, experiments, less, um, well, animal and um, basic cognition stuff. So, my lab in Peking University, we, we focus on like vision and aesthetic judgment, this sort of thing. Uh, whereas in Beijing Normal University and a lot of the American universities, I suspect, um, it's more about uh, social psychology. So with like bigger sample size, weaker conclusion, not science. <laughs> and and how did you how did you get interested in linguistics? Well, um, linguistics is broadly speaking also part of cognitive sciences. So I'm quite interested in cognition and psycholinguistics has always been my interest. Um, particularly, I didn't find. Um, like very um, matching tutor in Peking University. We had like two specialized in psycholinguistics and one of them, they're like big name, but has not been doing psycholinguistics for a while because psycholinguistics does not make money. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, now I know all about psychology. I know nothing about linguistics. How about I do a linguistic degree so that I can do psycholinguistics afterwards? Oh, okay, is that what your plan is? Yes, uh, well, that was my plan. <laughs> Not quite sure about it now. <laughs> Why? Well, I mean, linguistics has been quite different from psychology. Um, the method of study is different. That's like the major problem. It's not about the content of study, but about how people think, how um, um, academics approach the subject mm -hmm. in different fields. So here at Cambridge, like you can see there are like two schools of um, linguists. So um, we are called, our course is called the theoretical and applied linguistics, right? So you get like the theoretical people and then you get the applied people and they don't really talk to each other <laughs> because they don't understand what the other one's doing. 
Yeah. But you're doing more applied here. Yeah, I'm more applied. Um, I like to think of my work as um, advancing theories of psycholinguistics, but I do end up doing more applied stuff. Whereas with uh, theoretical linguistics, it's more about, um, um, let's say, uh, mental gymnastics. You don't really like do experiments. Instead, you have a set of like facts or theories in your mind, and you just sort of wriggle around and see what you can construct from them. <laughs> That's like my understanding of theoretical linguistics. Don't be me. <laughs> But uh, even when you do more applied and experimental stuff, it's still very different from... Oh yeah, it is. The focus of, um, say, experimental design is quite different. Like, from what we learned in lectures and seminars, um, psycholinguistics, even when they do experiments, they focus more on, um, let's say, less on individual cognitive differences, more on linguistic um, concept that was not designed to be experimentalized mm -hmm. because most experimental psychology um, linguistic psychology stuff are derived from theories that are not meant to be examined by <laughs> experiments but rather by concluding from facts that's how linguistic theories were initially formed. They don't do experiments. They just like gather a bunch of facts and try to like extrapolate things from it, right? But then now you design experiment around specific theories. That's like how uh, psycholinguistics conduct here. Whereas with psychology, it's more about okay. Now we have a vague form of um, theory or like hy hypothesis. Let's see what we can dig out from this, so you experiment more or less on your instinct. You design the experiment on your instinct, mm -hmm. according to, okay, I think this is a phenomena, I think this is a trend, but I'm not sure, so I'm gonna do a very scientific experiment, control all the variables, and see if it actually pans out true. That's how, well, my sense of psychological experiments are more like. So when you're trying to design a psycholinguistic ex experiment, I find myself focusing more on trying to control um, a lot of variables that linguists might not even consider having an effect on people. But I know this from my um, basic um, cognitive research in undergrad, that some like minute difference might massively influence the experimental results. So these are the things I look out for specifically. But with the... Uh, like experimental design itself, the concept itself is more intuitive rather than revolving around specific theories. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, um, well, mentors, um, tutors don't really understand why I'm doing this. They were like, okay, this all sounds fine and um, accurate, but where do you get this idea? And I would be like, I just feel this is something interesting. And they were like, yes, but do you have any theory to back it up? I'm like, I don't need a theory to finding out whether this is true or not alone it's interesting enough. That's how I do things in psychology. But apparently in linguistics, you have to adhere to theories. You can't just like randomly, okay, this is an interesting find, but what does it say? Mm, don't know, funny. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give like examples of your, um, what research do you do in, in undergrad, for example? The experiment I did for my thesis, undergrad thesis, it was based on a effect called the uh, oh, what's the name again? Like basically, if something is expanding in your vision field, 
and uh, it lasts for a while. Comparing that to something static in your vision field lasting for a while, you would find the expanding stuff feels like it's been there for longer. Cool. This is called time dilation effect. So like the things dilate, but it also dilates the time span of ex existence. So um, we know this as a like a very um, proved fact, but how exactly does it work? Um, what factor influence how it dilates time is what I did for my undergrad thesis. Mm -hmm. So for example, you see a circle expand, right? Is it the um, expansion of the diameter? Like how big it occupied, um, how big an area it occupied your vision field? Is that what caused the uh, dilation effect? Or is it the fact that uh, it is moving that caused the dilation effect? So maybe if it does not expand, but like just move around, it would also have the same effect, right? And what about the shrinking objects? So this is proof that uh, only dilating object causes the effect, but shrinking object does not. This is proved by some like um, like experiment from oh keep forgetting their names. Anyway, point being, this is proved, right? But there are yet still questions about whether see um, if you have a expanding ring, so you have like a ring with a hollow um, center. So the um, area covered by the object is actually the same throughout expanding because it's a ring. How does that compare to an expanding circle with the whole area filled with um, illumination? How does that compare to the expanding ring? How does that affect the dilation? This is what I did for my Nora thesis. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you, you see, like, you manipulate very subtle details, and sometimes you get completely different results. And you, there's no apparent way of explaining why your brain works that way. You can work a theory around it, but ultimately, it's just how our brain works, and it's fascinating, and it's different in so many different details. And uh, that sounds very different to linguistics. Is yeah. there anything that connects it not connects it to your research right now, or, uh, or is it completely different? Have you completely changed what you're doing? Well, I mean, I have a lot of interest. I've also done some experiment in um, aesthetic judgment. So basically, you judge whether a sentence, um, a poem, is aesthetically pleasing or not. And um, how you read it, the, the intonation, the prosody, affects how people think it's like a beautiful sentence or not. Mm -hmm. So, well, basically this is to say that um, the way you read something affects how beautiful people perceive it. Well, that, that sounds more, more linguistic here, right? Yeah. Like and what's more interesting about this is even if you don't understand the language, you just hear people read something in a language you completely have no idea what it is, you still s somehow capture up the prosody. If you read it slower, if you read it faster, and you ask the people who completely have no idea what this um, the, the meaning is about to judge whether it's, it sounds beautiful or mm -hmm. not, it still affects their judgment with like how you read it. So there's a three-second time window that uh, basically if something falls like roughly inside this time window, your brain is able to process it better than when it falls like out of the time window or whether it is too short. So if it falls like squarely, nicely in this like cradle of segmentation, your brain finds it's easier to process and therefore thinks it's more beautiful because it's like less labor. So uh, can you say that 
Italian is beautiful and German is ugly. I'd say German is beautiful as well. <laughs> yeah, but but why do people why do people say that? Why why do you think this sort of I don't know saying exists? Or I don't even know if it does exist. But it was a, a title of one of my essays that I had to write in undergrad. So I was just thinking, what's your perception on it? Well, uh, because my undergrad research is more about time perception. You can see these two are related to time, but in very different ways. Mm-hmm. So I would say German sometimes, well, the prosody of it might not be uh, very segmentable. As in, like with Italian, you can sort of have this this nice melody with like vowels, like nicely fall into chunks. With German, you get a lot of like uh, consonants without vowels, right? So the segmentation is more arbitrary. So that could possibly contribute to why people think German is ugly because like it's not, it's not, it doesn't quite. Hit on all the right spots. It just sometimes you just have like a, a really long word and you can't really read it like um, in a way that is nicely chunked into the three second time window. Mm-hmm. So you just get a lot of. <laughs> 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 That's a beautiful German interpretation. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I I might be talking completely nonsense here. <laughs> no, no, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting topic, I guess. Like I also don't think that like some languages are beautiful and some are ugly but it's interesting to think about why we perceive something the way we do or why and it's interesting that you've done research in this area i didn't know that uh what's your research here now what are you doing uh in cambridge for your thesis what are you focusing on well it still have more or less to do with how brain works a process stuff differently and how well, this is what's different from my previous research. Uh, I also focus on how basically stuff um, affects people's thinking fundamentally. So linguistic relativity is the topic I'm interested in. Okay. Uh, linguistic relativity is basically how language affects cognitive ability fundamentally. As in the first language you speak, the language you are raised in, might affect your way of perceiving the world. So every one of us have a different idea of the world because we um, well have different brain, and language might play might have played a part in how the differences in brains, um, like apparently cross culturally. I mean, culture is a thing, but language itself might also have contributed to this difference. Mm-hmm. So do you um, do you think? Because uh, this is also like a big debate, I feel, in linguistics, like whether language changes the way you think or if it detects the way you think. Or um, so, so what's your uh, sort of view on this? Well, I'm a firm um, objector of Chomsky's universal grammar, which made me rather unwelcome in Cambridge. <laughs> well, I mean, we do have some people that uh, not see eye to eye to Chomsky, but... I'd say Cambridge is very Chomsky-heavy. Hmm. So I, I do think language affects the way you think rather than the other way around. Because universal grammar basically says everyone is born with the same um, set of language organ in the brain. And you mm-hmm. just like turn on and off different parameters, right? But for me, I think it is the language that you're brought up in affects the way you perceive the world. And by the way, it, I say the way... It's uh, simultaneously uh, includes, you know, like worldview, this sort of like big mm, macro way of thinking, and some very minor but very fundamental basic ones that you wouldn't even begin to dream about them being influenced by language, but they are. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the famous example is Russian blue, I think. Mm-hmm. So in Russian, dark blue and light blue, they're two different words. They're not like dark blue and light blue. They're two completely different words. So if you ask people who speak Russian as a first language to um, classify, like you give them three color blobs and to group the two closest ones together, this task, this really simple task, they do it faster than people who does not speak Russian as a first language. Bear in mind, they um, people, whether they speak Russian or not, they both have the same criteria of um, separating, like these belongs to dark blue, these belongs to light blue. But those who speak Russian as a first language, they do this task faster. Like the, the process seems to be facilitated by having two different words for uh, dark and light blue. So this is an example of linguistic relativity. Mm-hmm. And what I'm doing here is a little bit off topic from the Russian blue thing. Russian blue is more um, about, I say it's more semantic, because, I mean, ultimately it's the, the semantics of dark and light that influence stuff. Uh, what I'm doing is uh, the grammatical gender. I'm trying to see how grammatical gender, the existence of the concept grammatical gender, influence people's thinking. Because we know in a lot of languages we don't have grammatical gender, but we also have a lot of languages that have uh, grammatical gender as a fundamental part of their noun system, right? So how does that influence people's worldview? Because surely if you see something and there's an additional concept of grammatical gender associated with it every time you see something, and we know grammatical gender is so arbitrary. Like like in German, for example, Mädchen, girl, it's gender neutral. It's like neutral gender, right? And in some languages, son is male. In some other languages, son is female. Like, how does that work? Why? It's just arbitrary. Mm-hmm. So this is very interesting. And we can say that if we assign an arbitrary gender to stuff, like, surely those are, are assigned the same gender, no matter how arbitrary it is, share some kind of similarity, right? So what I'm trying to... Uh, do with my master thesis is I find people who speak a gendered language like Spanish or German and I give them um, words in a not gender language which is English in my case and when they see the word uh, because their first language is gendered um, they must have associated this with the whole concept of the object in their first language because we think in first language and to see whether having that association, um, ha- well, dif- differs, um, having that association influence their processing of nouns. I'm trying to use a, um, it's a um, quite common stra- um, paradigm in psycholinguistics, uh, priming. So we know if we see something, well, say uh, we see a dog, and then you present them with a target. If this target is related to ducks, such as geese, you react faster because your brain is prepared with this concept, right? So what I'm trying to do with my master thesis is I'm trying to see whether having your brain associated with a particular gender prepares your brain for processing stuff in that same gender. Okay. Uh, how, uh, so you prime it. How do you prime it? With, uh, like- so I show them a word in English. Mm-hmm. 
the word in English itself is not associated with gender, right?、Mm. But when they、uh, see the word and、um, they process the meaning of the word,、mm -hmm. they access the object concept deep in their brain associated with their first language,、mm -hmm. which is associated with the grammatical gender. Yeah, okay. And then I present them with a second word. They need to make a judgment,、um, a judgment about meaning with the second word. This this judgment itself is not related to grammatical gender. Okay. But my hypothesis is. If they have seen a word of the same grammatical gender in their first language, their brain might be more prepared to process word in that grammatical gender, even though it's not presented in their first language, because it's related to this concept of the object, like the meaning deep in the meaning network.、Mm -hmm. So my hypothesis would、um, uh, predict that if they are shown a word in the same grammatical gender. Even if they they see it in English, they still process it faster. So when I ask them to make a judgment based on some unrelated feature, they will react faster if it's in the same gender. Okay, so if both are feminine, first word and second word, priming word and target word, then you expect their reaction time to be faster. Yes. Okay. Yeah, would make sense, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Have you had any interesting results already? Or? Well,、uh, I've only done a、um, a very.、Um, Small scale experiment with like eight subjects or something.、Mm -hmm. I I do have a trend in the way that I predicted, so it's looking very good for me. But、uh, I also need to、uh, collect more participants, and I need to modify my experiment a bit because、uh, it's interesting that how culture affects you、uh, classify、uh, how how you classify stuff in unrelated um um features. Uh, I'm using living and non living things, for example, as a irrelevant task, right? And apparently,、um, for Spanish people, their idea of living and non-living differs slightly from at least me. Really, in what way? So, part of a living thing, such as like a heart, hand, like for me, this is more living than non-living because they're still part of the living thing. Or like、um, fruit from a tree. I mean, they are part of a living thing. Therefore, they're more living than non-living. But I I do have a native Spanish speaker said to me that、um, in Spanish culture you would definitely classify those things as, as non living like only the full living things are living. So this is more cultural than language I would say because there's no language marker in how these things are like full living these are partial living. I think this is more cultural. So that is also an interesting demonstration of how culture and language cross influence each other. This is the minute thing that. If you don't pay attention to in your experiment, they might mess up your experimental result, and you would explain that the wrong way. I was also thinking that I would also classify them as non-living. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I th I think in in some like I I I have like a very、um, big divide between like some people would just like surely that is living, and the other would be like that's not living, and <laughs> there's like no explanation. It's just something in your head, right? Is it the language? Language that's affected. I mean, language probably played a part, but I mean, there are a bunch of other things. Culture, both the the big culture, the country culture, and your personal experience that could also have like influence stuff, or even childhood experience.、Um, maybe your first、um, vocabulary book that teach you things, the way it presents, could also differ.、Um, and also, like,、um, do you know、uh, synesthesia? 
So it is the phenomena that some people associate different senses together. Uh, when they say a, when they see a letter, they see color. Oh yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, or like when they look at uh, numbers, they hear music. So synesthesia, uh, this phenomena is suspected to be related to childhood experience. Yeah, but like imagine like your personal childhood experience shapes like your world. Your world is actually different from other people because you have a like link between senses. How cool is that? Can't imagine. Like sounds cool, but <laughs> do you think this also like this can also affect the way you like you categorize things? Like? Oh yeah, definitely. Like for me, I I have this association between letter and color and number and color. Yeah. So um, funny thing is, my partner also has synesthesia. So one day we just like sat down and compared what color we associate with different letters. It's completely different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, like in no way the same. It's very personal. Like uh, different experience. And this is mainly really related to childhood experience, not well, language. So we much. don't actually know what's going on with synesthesia. Like this is one of the theories. Uh, the other theory would be like different brain regions that are not supposed to have overlink have like hyperactive neural links that should have died down during childhood but didn't. So yeah, they're interesting. Never uh, yeah, I've heard of people having uh, having this, but I haven't really uh, researched why why this is happening. That's super cool to cool to hear. Um, so um, coming from psychology. To linguistics, how do you feel that uh, having psychology background uh, does it support your linguistic studies? I feel like you said that. Oh yeah, experimental design definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, it helps you to see things that um, a normal linguist wouldn't normally consider, mm -hmm. and also the statistics skills really help. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, this is both a curse and a blessing. Um, you don't know that much about linguistics, so when people talk about linguistic theories, you'll be like, what, what are you talking about? This doesn't really make sense. But at the same time, it is like one of the... Um, it's, it's sort of like you are free of the bias that is established in the linguistic field. You look at everything um, skeptically. You look at the theory and you don't accept it as it is. You question like how, why is it this way? Do we have any experimental support? Is there any data behind this? How is this theory formed? Did you form the theory based on hard concrete data or did you just put it out of your head? <laughs> so this can also help if you're coming up with critical um, views mm -hmm. and yeah. new theories. Yeah, it makes sense, definitely. Um, so for uh, people not in our course who don't know that Recently, we had this fantastic oral presentation that we uh -huh. had to do in a slightly different topic than our own research topic. And Emily's presentation was by far the most exciting. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> do you want to tell us a little bit about what was your... Oh, yes, sure. <laughs> so um, I have to admit my um, presentation wasn't very deep. It is more of a broad uh, con um, overview of a new topic which a lot of us are, must be rather familiar with, emoji. Yay, emojis. <laughs> yes. So um, emojis, they are, well, on, on the face of it, they're not really a language. It's just a bunch of pictures, right? But when you consider language, really, what is language? It's a way of communication. They have meaning, right? So 
um, we can at least say that emoji is a paralinguistic thing now because people use emojis all the time and sometimes even like without context and when used within the context the same words can convey very different meaning and attitude with different emoji accompanied with it mm-hmm. and, so, yeah, and you also looked at cross-cultural yes. effect and also it's very different uh, very different across uh, culture and even across um, people in the same like broad culture but with different subculture group that um, emoji can cause misunderstanding one thing uh, surprisingly a lot of us may not be aware of is that emoji look massively different across different platform they look massively different on Android uh, or Apple or Google or Twitter like sometimes you just send an emoji and you'd be like why don't why this is like such a clear message why does it not get through and then you look at the person's phone and you realize the emoji looks different like there's no way they are the same emoji but apparently they are they're different emoji fonts so this is a thing that causes massive misunderstanding um there's a uh, research with like thousands of participants and very robust data that shows reliably that emoji uh can be interpreted very differently across platform across people on the same platform and context word accompanying emoji doesn't help trying to uh this um discern the different meaning of emoji and in some cases it even it's even worse when coming with tags. It's just simply confusing. And after your presentation, I just I'm so like too conscious of all the emojis that I use. I always think like, what am I trying to get across? Am I getting the right meaning across? How do they interpret that? I don't know. Have you like after looking into the emojis, have you like become too conscious? Well, uh, if anything, I start to use more extreme emojis. Okay. Yeah, because I know that subtle emojis can look differently. And you, if you're trying to convey a very subtle message with a subtle emoji, and it looks different on the other person's phone, the thing is completely lost. So instead, I just use like the universally acceptable laugh or mm, <laughs> that sort of stuff. Make sure like it's a very clear message that I'm sending. And also, uh, there's a way of avoiding the uh, cross-platform emoji um, font thing. Is basically make up your own memes. Just send pictures of memes. That's clever. <laughs> yeah, memes, they, they are like really useful. And because you're sending a picture rather than a font, so everyone has the same picture. And there's more chance of getting the same message through. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> so uh, now you're almost at the end of your course here. Yeah. What's, what's next for you? Um, I have decided I'm gonna take a gap here regardless. Um, I have a lot of interest. So uh, aside from psycholinguistics, I'm also interested in law for some reason. <laughs> yeah, so I'm gonna try and dabble a bit in this field and see how, how I feel. And also um, because I come from a psychology background, um, I'm interested in the more traditional psychology and more specifically, um, being a therapist, so like therapeutic psychology. But that would be a very different thing from the undergrad training I had in psychology, because my undergrad uni is basically research-focused, whereas um, therapist is more applied, so I need to take a different course on that. 
So these are the options that are open to me at the moment. And also, um, I'm quite interested in alternative reality games. So um, basically the games that we play in the real world, such as you might have heard of LARP, live action role play, um, and um, the our very own Cambridge Assassin's Guild. <laughs> That is like a 24-7 game you play with people you barely know, you only have their names, and you have to work out where they are and try to kill them with uh, toy weaponry. So this sort of game is what I'm interested in, partly because it's exciting, uh, it's an exciting new form of game that uh, essentially uses the whole real world as a stage. And also partly because uh, why people are interested in this sort of games, the, the psychology within is fascinating. How, like, why are people attracted to games that are essentially, like, intertwined with reality? What attracts people? What game mechanism attracts people here? The um, uh, classic game mechanism, how do they apply to this? And how do they not apply in this kind of game? This is something I would both uh, rather do some research on and also try to uh, uh, form my own theory. So, yeah. These are choices. <laughs> so, do you have an um, idea to like um, or goal to integrate all these, like law and therapy and theory, or are they <laughs> or game theory, or are they separate? I mean, at least um, law, linguistics, and psychology. These three can be integrated quite uh, nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Professor Williams, Professor Doctor Williams, has told me uh, one of his former students is now doing uh, forensics discourse analysis in Hong Kong. So that's like psychology, linguistics, and law. Well, yeah, that's, that's something I might be looking into. That's super exciting. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Uh, good luck with everything, thank your you. research and your future plans. And thank you so much for coming. That was very inspiring, very um, exciting. Thank you for the interview. Thank, thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you for watching. That was Emily speaking about linguistics and psychology. Um, like, share, subscribe. We have Facebook, Instagram, mm, YouTube, and <laughs> yay! <laughs>